All right. You guys will notice the music stand is a little higher. Um, when we started to think and when we were praying through this sermon series, A Life Through Christ, chronologically going through the life of Christ, uh, one of the first phone calls that I made was to a friend of mine named Trevor, Trevor Petty, who's uh, the campus uh, house person director over in Greeley uh, with Impact Ministries. And so, but he is also very knowledgeable in the life of Christ, much more than me. And so my whole goal was to learn from him about how to kind of put this together. And so him and I sat at a coffee shop in uh, Fort Collins and he just kind of picked his brain. But I asked him if periodically he would come and speak. And so I am delighted uh, that he has come. And so will you guys do me a big favor and just give a round uh, welcome whatever, to Trevor Petty. Hey, everybody. Oh, turn me back on. So, and this is his book, which I'm going to plug. So, Strange Revolution, Life of Christ. So there you go. Awesome, thanks. Well, yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's awesome to be here. I was excited when he asked if, if I'd be willing to come speak, because uh, I enjoy doing that kind of stuff. And as he told me you guys are going through the life of Christ, I got really excited too, because that's, as we, as we meet with students, I mean, right away, that's what we dig into. It's just the question of who is Jesus and going through stories through the gospel. And uh, when he mentioned this story for this week, I also got excited because it's one that I've done several times with students uh, to help kind of lay some foundations. Uh, but I also know it's kind of a doozy and kind of weird. <laughs> so, so we're going we're gonna to dig into it and see, uh, and see where it takes us. But uh, to start off, I actually have a question for you all. How many of you, or were any of you, uh, born and raised here in Loveland? Yes, <laughs> there are some. Uh, there are, yeah, there's someone in the back. Awesome. Yeah, not many of you though, right? So the rest of you are like me and are from somewhere else, right? So, so I'm, from, I'm from central Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, if anyone knows. It's actually the... You? Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so Springfield's actually the capital. It's not Chicago. It's not a... Um, but yeah, so I'm from central Illinois. And... Uh, some of you might experience this as, as you go home, but sometimes going home can be kind of, kind of a weird experience, you know, when you, when you return to the place that you grew up, you know, because things have changed somewhere or another. Sometimes it's that the place has changed, and, and you show up, and like the field is no longer a field that you, you know, used to play in, or, or there's just houses or buildings or, or buildings that were there aren't there, or um, sometimes it's the people, and you show up, and all the people that were once there are no longer there. And you're like, is this really the place anymore? Or um, sometimes it's that you're different, right? Uh, and as you return home, you come back, um, you've changed. Uh, and maybe your family or those friendships, sometimes you don't understand that. And it can be kind of strange. Well, uh, if your hometown is anything like mine, you probably have also some, some hometown heroes you know, it could be the, the someone who made it big, the celebrity or, uh, or the athlete or whatever. And in Springfield, Illinois, our big, big hometown hero is Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, the land of Lincoln. Like, it's like all over all sorts of billboards for Illinois, but we've got the Lincoln homes. And he wasn't even born in Springfield, but we're very happy to claim him. Hey, he may or may not had something to do with the naming of our child. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Abe Lincoln, because everyone loves, like, a good hero, someone you can kind of attach yourself to and say, yeah, like, we matter, you know. We were, we're from somewhere, and, like, 
we can do good things and until that person doesn't do good things. And you're like, we don't know who that is. And that had nothing to do with the place that we're from, surely. Uh, we don't know them, you know. Well, the story today, I think, I think pulls some of these elements together. Uh, it's a story of a homecoming. Uh, as Jesus is getting started in his ministry, he heads home to Nazareth. Little old Nazareth from the, the, the Christmas story, I'm sure you all know, and, uh, or from his childhood. And uh, heads home, and in a lot of ways, Jesus would have been a, that kind of hometown hero. Someone who, he'd become a rabbi, was kind of making a name, and that, that Nazareth could say, yeah, he's one of ours. Because we know Nazareth was kind of looked down upon. In fact, later, as Jesus is talking with someone, someone actually has, has the gall to ask, what good can come from Nazareth? Because they find out Jesus is from Nazareth. And so there are a lot of ways that, that the town of Nazareth is probably really excited to have this respectable, respectable rabbi out there doing things, teaching people, starting to do miracles. Woo! Uh, and so he's come home. Let's go see what, what this is all about. And so, so he shows up and he's there, uh, and they, he's there at the, the synagogue on, a, on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. We didn't mess that up. We worship on Sundays because the resurrection was Sundays. Uh, and so they would gather on Saturdays, Saturdays the big day of rest in the synagogue, and they'd study the scriptures together, and they'd eat together. And it was kind of like their library. It's how, it's how they learned uh, their cultural, religious education. It's probably the very synagogue that Jesus had grown up learning the scriptures at, right? But now he's an adult, and now he's the one doing the speaking. And in fact, he's probably speaking to some of the people that he'd grown up learning the scriptures from in that place. But now he's the one doing the teaching. And so our story, if you want to open up, is in Luke 4. We're also going to have, have it overhead too. Uh, and so things get started. Oh, and Luke, Luke actually decides to start his gospel basically with this story. And so in the gospel of Luke, he's, he's in the desert, he's being tempted, uh, and he comes out and bam, he goes to Nazareth. Uh, and it tells us he's already started doing things. And so uh, this isn't like it's like his first sermon. I like to kind of think of it that way, but it's not quite the case. Uh, and we've got some other versions uh, that have little tidbits about it, same kind of punchlines to the story. Uh, but Luke gives us the fuller story of what happens, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so Jesus is there in Nazareth. And so four, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, uh, He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, so this is actually like a little bit of a mashup of a few different passages from Isaiah. And we know that they would do this a lot when they taught. They could pull some things together from prophets. Um, but as he's reading this to them, they would all recognize right away that this passage is about the Messiah. There's no question about that. And as you kind of dig in, it's, it's, essentially like, it's essentially the mission statement for who the Messiah is and what they're going to do. And so as a, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me. You know, I, I, as, a, as a Christian, you may be familiar with the way that we speak about the Spirit being in the believers, in believers. And this is before that. 
And so at this time, the Spirit would come upon certain people, like prophets, and it had been foretold that the Spirit of God would be upon the Messiah, or would be the Messiah, right, in a very special way, uh, that he would have this miraculous power, and he'd be sent for this special mission of God to recover his people, to recover the world. Uh, and so this, he's sent on this mission, it says to preach good news to the poor. Good news there, you probably, you've probably heard the word gospel, that's that word, it's that announcement, like, like the, hey, we're getting married, you know, like, like an exciting announcement. And it's good news for the poor, and that, that can mean a lot of things, you know. And so we, we, we often think of poor as being like materially, you know, in need, but, but a lot of ways that this word just means more broadly need. He's come to bring good news to people who are in need, and we're all in need in some way. Uh, and he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, or, or later to release the oppressed. And I don't, I don't completely know the difference there. I've always wondered about that. Like, it sounds like it kind of repeats itself a little bit. But one way or another, he's, he's, he's liberating people. That Jesus has come to set people free. You know, and as Americans, we were all about that freedom, right? <laughs> we know that message. We want that freedom. Uh, and this is a part of his identity and his mission to liberate people. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're captive or we're oppressed by all kinds of things. And in, and in fact, in Jesus' ministry, he's going to encounter people oppressed by all kinds of things. And that, that could be poverty. That could be a social status that is rejected or unclean. Uh, that could be an illness. Um, that could be... Uh, all kinds of things, a spiritual oppression. Uh, or we know, uh, in their minds, when you talk about oppression, they'd be thinking right away about the Roman Empire, a very political, economic kind of oppression that they experience as a sort of minority group in the Roman Empire. And finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, is like a tagline throughout the books of the, the, the prophets. And it's describing, it's picking up this idea of what's called a year of jubilee. And we don't know that they actually ever did it, but as a part of Jewish law, every 50 years, there was like this big reset. And debts were forgiven, and people were, were given their lands back, their farms back. It was just kind of this big equalizer and fresh start for their society. But like I said, we don't know that they actually did it. But in the prophets, it starts to carry even this bigger idea. And it goes from just being this forgiving of debts and this returning of lands uh, to start to be this idea of like this reset with God. That as things had gone south with God, as, as Israel had become conquered by other nations, they want this reset. They want their land back. They want a home again. But they want a fresh start with God. This forgiving of debts, this forgiving of sins. And here the Messiah, on top of doing all these things, is going gonna, is gonna to restart this relationship, this society with God. Well, as you can imagine, that's, that's pretty exciting news. But it's interesting because Jesus, as he puts these passages together, he stops there. There's actually more that they thought the Messiah would do. Uh, and in fact, we have some ancient commentaries. They're called Targums. Uh, there's some, they're like scriptural translations, but they also add a bunch of like what teachers taught about passages. And in these Targums, we know that when they talked about this passage, when they talked about the Messiah, they really capitalized on the next verse. And the next verse 
was all about how the Messiah would bring the vengeance of God upon the enemy nations. Right? And so as people heard about the Messiah, I mean, you get excited, yeah, and we, this reset, and, and we're reset because God's finally going to punish our enemies. And that's really what got emphasized. And it was very much a kind of thing of like, God's going to take back the land that they took from us and give it to us, and we're going to have a double portion. It was very much this kind of like gaining at the expense of these other nations, these enemies, these oppressors, these foreigners. But for some reason, Jesus stops right before that, which is interesting. We also know that that passage goes on to describe in this replanting, in this vengeance, this resettling, an actual resettling. This idea that God was going to replant his people and rebuild the things that had been destroyed and and repaying all that had been lost. And it just so happens that Nazareth, as a town, was like the, the spitting image of that ideal. And so not long before, about 100 years prior, Israel had been an, become an independent nation again and had started to regain some of these lost territories that had been conquered by these enemy nations. And in the goal of re-inhabiting these places, they start to resettle, and they resettled places like Nazareth as a sort of example of, yes, we're, we're reclaiming this identity with God. He's carrying out this vision of restoring us Except then, it kind of didn't play out that way. And pretty soon, despite this, this identity as a town, and as a people, as this resettled place, the Romans roll in. And, and that freedom, that restoration, was stopped short. And so growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would have known this verse. This would have been like Nazareth's like slogan, right? Except, you know, you get to the resettling, it's like, well, we've got to go back now, back to the vengeance part. Because now we've been taken over again. So God, we are waiting for that Messiah to punish all our enemies and and give us what's really ours, right? To give us back all that's been taken so we can have it again. But that's not actually really where where Jesus goes with this. And so so we read on. He he reads these passages and then he stops and he's going to start teaching on it. And so as we continue in verse 20, it says... Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. So Jesus makes a huge claim. He says, these very things that you're waiting for, these very things that you're looking for and longing for, they're happening. They're happening now. The Messiah is here. That's a big deal. And in fact, in the Gospels, this is, it's not as obvious to us, but this is one of the most overt claims to being a Messiah most direct claims that Jesus makes to being the Messiah. And it would have not been lost on anyone there. They know exactly what he's saying. That he 
has finally come. And initially, this sounds exciting. It says they speak well of him, right? This is good news. Oh, yeah, we love this. We've been, we, like, we teach it. This is like the memory verse that like, every kid learns growing up. Like, it's finally happening. We're finally going to get this back. We're finally going to know what the Romans. This is good news, right? To us poor people, to us oppressed people. We need to be freed. This is, this is exciting. But you know, that, that, that excitement kind of starts to settle in, wear off a little bit, and, and the, the wheels are turning, and there's a little bit of turn in the passage. Uh, and so you see that question, but wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Right? Like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Like, <laughs> that's, that is really, thank you, Jesus. It's, it's nice of you to say that about us. It's really exciting, but like, uh, how do you know? And like, you, are you, you really saying that you're the Messiah? I mean, like, guys, this is Jesus. Like, I grew up, you know, babysitting, his, babysitting him. And like, you know, we, we worked out in the fields together, did some construction projects together. Like, is this really the guy that's going to, like, make all this happen? Some of the other versions of this story actually carry some more questions to make clear that this is very much the seed of doubt, right? Like, how is this guy going to accomplish this? And they ask other questions like, how did this guy get so wise? Or maybe like, what makes this guy think he's so wise? Right? He grew up in the same synagogue that we did. And they say things like, well, like, when, where do you get all this stuff? And apparently, he's, he, maybe he's dressed nice, or maybe he gave something to the synagogue. We don't know. You know, it starts to carry this idea. It's like, it's like, so Jesus has moved on from Nazareth as he started his ministry, and he comes back, and they're like, whoa, how did he become such a big shot? <laughs> right? Like, how did, what makes him think that he can do all this? What makes him think that he's better than us? Hmm. But aside from being a bold claim, this is actually a very, very risky claim as well. And so not far from Nazareth is a town called Sephoris. And Sephoris is like, I want to say it was like, like an hour's walk or something like that. Um, during Jesus' childhood, around the time of his birth, there was a sort of messianic claimant in the town of Sephoris. And that claimant led, of course, a revolt against Rome. And these battles ensued all over town, and it dragged on and on. And so finally, the Roman, the Roman legion of soldiers had to come in, and they just leveled the town. It wasn't a just uproot the bandits kind of thing. It was like, yeah, get out. We're destroying everything. We're tired of this. And that's what happened. And so Sephoris was erased. It was a pile of rubble. And then Herod trying to kind of contrast these, these annoying Jewish people who are constantly revolting because they want a king and yada, yada, yada. I was like, well, I'm going to rebuild Sephoris as like a pillar of like this Greco-Roman culture and ooh, the great architecture and so on and so forth. And so he starts rebuilding Sephoris. And so you have Sephoris kind of towering over little old Nazareth. And in fact, we think it may be part of why Jesus actually grew up in Nazareth to begin with. As a carpenter, he may have been working on these Gentile foreign projects. And so claiming to be the Messiah was risky because they would have been well aware of how that played out in Sephoris. And now this once upon a time kid that they grew up with is saying, I am the Messiah. And it's like, oh, that's, wait a second. 
Could that happen here? Do we want to take the chance that that would happen? Are we really going to put all our eggs in this basket? In this guy? It would have been concerning. So Jesus continues, and I'm going to summarize the next couple of paragraphs. You're welcome to read them. This is usually where people are like, what is going on? <laughs> So Jesus uh, throws out, and he says, he knows, right? He can read the room. He gets what's going on, that they're, they're not on board with him. They're not believing him. And he says, well, sure, you're going to say, prove yourself, right? Perform some miracles. Make it crystal clear that you are, in fact, the Messiah. And then he quotes this idea that they all know. Uh, and he says, uh, prophets are always rejected in their hometowns. And one of the other versions even adds to it in their hometowns and in their own house. That as he's speaking, he's not just speaking to Nazareth, he's speaking to his family. Jesus has, you know, four brothers and sisters, plural, who are probably there. A prophet, the Messiah, is rejected in his hometown, even in his own home. And then he goes on to tell some, or point to some stories. In the Old Testament, prophets are often rejected. And so there's these two examples he gives of Elijah and Elisha. Two of the, the big dogs in the Old Testament who performed all sorts of crazy cool miracles. They weren't just the like confront people kind of prophets. These guys performed incredible wonders. But oddly, they were doing this at a time that the nation rejected them as in like threatened their lives. They had to flee Israel and they actually, when they fled, went to the neighboring countries and performed miracles and healed people to Israel's enemies. And so Jesus points to this and it's like he's saying, you all, we always reject everyone. You're gonna, as you reject me, it happened with Elijah and Elisha, so if you do that, I'm going to move on, I'm going to go elsewhere, I'm going to go to your enemies and I'll help them instead. And this is stunning, right? This is the exact opposite of how they think of this passage about the Messiah. This is the exact opposite of the vengeance and the anger that they have and that they're looking for this Messiah to serve their needs and to serve their frustrations and to voice their anger for their town and to represent their people. And instead, Jesus has essentially given them a huge slap in the face, He's not expressing the, the loyalty or the attachment, the ideals that they know. These aren't the slogans that he grew up learning, that he was raised, the mantras, the party lines, the, the ambitions, the career plans. This. And in fact, instead, Jesus is calling out all of these things, all of these ideals, the politics, the preferences, even the prejudices, like only someone from that place could. And instead of just being some flippant response, I think this was calculated. I think Jesus knew all along. Growing up there, he knew when he returned the things that he would end up confronting. And so he does. And as a result, they lose their minds. They lose it. And so we're going to read on here. This is uh, verse 28 through 30 now. 
And it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him out of the town. And they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Yeah, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> the ending there. So, the, uh, so they turned from like, the hometown hero to an angry mob, right? And now their hometown hero, the guy that they were excited to see and hear, and oh, this is, wait, wait, wait. Like they, the, the switch flips, and they're dragging them out to the edge of town to a cliff. This is, how you, this is one of the ways you could stone people, right? You could beat them with rocks. It's the death penalty. Or you could throw them down onto rocks. Brutal. <laughs> Um, so they take him to the hill, and they're totally going to kill him. You know, and this is, this is that mob mentality, right? It feeds on the anger. And the fr- yeah, you, no, no, we've got to get rid of this guy. And surely, it's always just that eruption of emotion, because he has pushed a button that they can't handle. But, but there's some other thing. Maybe it's, that, maybe it's that he's the risk for their town. Right now, they're disowning him. Like, like, like we might want to disown the hero that's kind of embarrassing. And, uh, but they're going to disown him by trying to kill him. And we know culturally, this is actually called uh, an honor killing. This is different. I mean, that, this kind of plays in American society, but uh, in Middle Eastern cultures, uh, honor and shame are, are like the pillars of society. And so as someone does something to shame your family or your town, you have to restore honor by disowning, usually, executing that person. And so people will have honor killings to restore the honor of their family, often even executing their own children, friends, neighbors. This is probably an honor killing. That Jesus has crossed a line that he should have known better than to cross. And you don't say those kind of things and you don't do those kind of things and you don't take these kind of risks. And so they're going to get rid of him to restore the honor of Nazareth. Even scarier to think about that line about even being rejected in his own home, that even Jesus' own brothers, his own siblings, who are also probably adults now, are likely a part of this crowd. Now, there's some assumption there, but we know from some later stories and tidbits that his siblings do not put their faith in him as the Messiah until after his resurrection. We have some tidbits where his brothers are even provoking Jesus and challenging him to prove himself and mocking him. Uh, We have other stories where they try to take control of Jesus and they claim that he's insane, again, trying to restore honor to the family who's otherwise humiliated by what he's doing and saying and how he's confronting his society. So his own family uh, is likely a part of this. I can't imagine But Jesus doesn't actually go on provoking them, or at least he doesn't tell us that he does. It sounds like they kind of drag him out, the mob mentality. They get to the hill, and then for some reason, it doesn't happen. It just says he walks right through them. And I don't know if this is like the, yeah, we're going to kill him, yeah. And Jesus is just kind of like, okay, you know, whatever. I know how this is going to go. And they get out there, but, you know, maybe we're not so angry. Like, I don't know. Or like, they're walking with him. They're like, yeah, but this is Jesus really going to kill him? Like, I don't know what changed. Or if it's like a miraculous thing that somehow Jesus gets out there and he's like just staring them down, you know, like, really, guys? 
or like a, a God miracle thing that just like suddenly they're like, whoa, <laughs> and he just walks away. But somehow or another, they take him to the edge of the cliff, but it isn't his time to die. The story's not over. It's just getting started. He can't die yet. This isn't how it's supposed to work. And he doesn't, and he walks away. He doesn't raise a fuss. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't, you know, he's not just flippantly provoking people. He's confronted what he came to confront, and so he leaves. Hmm. Well, we know uh, he sets up his ministry base and actually it may have already happened in Capernaum. And in the Gospels, we don't hear any more about Nazareth. There are no more stories about Nazareth. From what we know, Jesus doesn't go back. And instead, we have all sorts of stories of Jesus doing incredible things all sorts of other places. But he wasn't joking. When he laid out his mission plan, it was very much a, you can get on board or get out of the way and I'm going to leave. And that's what happened. Hmm. So I wonder, are we Nazareth? Maybe I should say, I'm afraid that often we can be like Nazareth. That we can get swept away in our, in our anger and our frustrations and in our group thinking, our identity that's been challenged and the party lines and slogans and the simple us versus them mentality where we're looking for a savior who is for us and very clearly against them. Looking for a savior to reinforce our opinions, our behaviors, our preferences, maybe our prejudices. Nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Nobody wants to be called out are confronted even by Jesus. We often don't want to see the truth, the Messiah, God, as he stands right in front of us. Hmm. Uh, well, last week I've heard that you guys did the story of the Samaritan woman. Is that right? Does that ring a bell? And uh, from what I know, that story ends with this, this big proclamation as these Samaritans, these foreign people or these enemy people of the Jews, uh, come to embrace Jesus as a Savior and they proclaim him the Savior of the world. But yet in this story, it's kind of like Nazareth wasn't looking for the Savior of the world. They were looking for the Savior of Nazareth. And so missed the Savior of the world. I think I do that a lot. That I'm looking for the person to save me and my interests and my aspirations and my needs and my finances and my health. You know. Others, eh. <laughs> If I'm in a good mood, probably. Definitely not if I'm angry at them. 
But ultimately, it's not about what I can get. It's not about how Jesus has come to give me all that I want. It's about what I can give. And that mission statement that Jesus laid out for them, for his ministry, is all about all these amazing things that he was going to do as he served the world around him, as he, as he helped people, as he freed and liberated people. It was not about how people were going to get rich, get their lands. It's not all about me. As Jesus lays this out, there's a lot of ways that we can say it's his mission statement, but it's not just his mission statement. It's ours. And he's asking if we'll join him in it. If we'll join his love and justice, if we'll join living in his kind of wisdom, if we'll join him in his rejection and suffering, even death, but also his resurrection. And that's good news. So this story sets up the gospel in all sorts of ways because everything we see happen in this story is what happens throughout his ministry. He continues to lay things out there and speak the truths of God and confront the ills of his society in ways that ticks people off and they rage against him until finally he returns home again to the temple, his house, where he does it again there and is rejected by his own people. As he's crucified, he's, he's carried to the brow of the hill to be killed, and this time he is actually executed. But three days later, he raises from the dead. And all of this was so that he could recover us, that we could join him, that we could be one with him again as a way of offering forgiveness to even his enemies, us, as we reject God, as we rebel against him. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask again, what is, your, what is your mission? Will you join Jesus in his? And I want to proclaim to you that the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. He's anointing you to preach good news to people in need. He's sending you to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to bring sight to the blind, to release those oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How awesome. Now please, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Well, God, I pray that we would be a people who embraces this bold and difficult mission I pray that we'd be a people who does not shy away from the rejection, doesn't shy away from the sting as you confront the ills within us, but would repent and would work with you, would come to you as you rebuild us, as you remake us and restore us. And God, may you be our fuel. May you be the one sending us uh, to serve our, our, our country, our people, our communities, our neighbors, our families with that bold and incredible love, inviting others into that salvation to meet the Savior of the world. 
So God, thank you so much for the ways that you have forgiven us and invited us into that wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen.